Hello everyone and welcome to Homicide Hot Dish, where you get your scoop of true crime. I'm your host, Brittany. For our hot dish recipe, I chose a stuffed pepper hot dish. It's literally a stuffed pepper in hot dish form and it's super easy to make and takes under 30 minutes. As always, check out our Facebook page, Homicide Hot Dish, for that recipe. And now, on to the homicide. On April 13, 2006, a young boy goes to his neighbor's house to see if his son is home so they can play. Once he steps on the front porch, he knows something is very wrong. A window has been broken, and there's blood dripping down. This is the murder of John Yelnick. John Yelnick was born on February 20, 1967, in Blairsville, Pennsylvania, a small town about an hour east of Pittsburgh. His dad had passed away when John was just an infant from a tragic car accident. According to John's obituary, he graduated from the University of Pittsburgh Dental School in 1993, and at just 26 years old, he became a partner in a dental office in Blairsville. His partner was actually his childhood dentist, who was also the person who inspired him to get into dentistry. John was very successful, and according to an episode of Killer Affair, he used money from his practice to invest in real estate, and he became a millionaire at a very young age. He loved being a dentist, and according to an episode of Dateline, John's neighbor, a little boy named Zachary Use, remembered how John would try to get him to open his mouth by making him laugh, and he even gave him a toy once for having to pull a tooth. John loved children, and someday he wanted one of his own. He dated for a few years until one day in 1996, when John was 29 years old, he met a 25-year-old woman named Michelle. Michelle seemed beyond perfect. She was this beautiful brunette who worked as a Budweiser girl, where she would go to bars in a bikini and hand out Budweiser samples. She would get pictures taken with customers. Everybody seemed to notice her, especially John. According to an episode of Killer Affair, John's friends set the couple up. John was so smitten and would tell everyone, I got the homecoming queen. He was so proud to have Michelle on his arm. Now remember earlier I said John's dad had passed away. John was an only child, so his mother was his whole world. That is, up until he met Michelle. Just a year into dating Michelle, John's mother found out that she had pancreatic cancer. He was heartbroken to find out and didn't know what to do. But Michelle was there for him and his mother. She dropped everything to help John take care of his mother, which brought the couple closer. According to the Killer Affair episode, John's friend Dennis Vaughn says, quote, Michelle pretty much provided full-time care for John's mother while she was sick. And while he was tending to his dental practice, she was there most of the time caring for her daily needs, end quote. It really did seem like Michelle was perfect. John's mother ended up passing away in June of 1997, and a month later, John proposed to Michelle with a two-carat diamond ring. Now, John's friends and family felt like the couple was moving a bit fast. They had just started dating the year prior, 
But on New Year's Eve, about five months after John's proposal, the couple goes to Las Vegas and get married. Michelle had two children from a previous marriage, so John got an instant family, if you will, and he was thrilled to have these kids in his life. He was basically a big kid himself, and as I also mentioned earlier, John was a millionaire dentist, and when his mother passed away, she left her entire estate and her $1 million life insurance policy to John. He had more money than what most people could dream. John's friends and family actually thought Michelle had an ulterior motive. I mean, they got married so quickly, and Michelle had to have known how rich John was. Days after John's mother passed away, he had a will drawn up, leaving everything to Michelle. John's friends didn't understand what was going on and said it just seemed odd for him to do this. They thought Michelle was getting too close too soon. John bought a house for him, Michelle, and her two kids, but she wasn't satisfied with the house. According to the Killer Affair episode, John's friend Dennis Vaughn says, quote, John said at the time that Michelle wasn't comfortable living in the house in Blairsville, that it wasn't large enough, and she wanted something more, end quote. So, John gives Michelle what she wants. Dennis Vaughn goes on to say, quote, he purchased for her a very large home in Indiana, Pennsylvania, about 29 miles out of Blairsville, end quote. The large home has a pool, hot tub, wine cellar, and John lavishes Michelle with jewelry, expensive clothing, and other gifts. It seems she had the life every girl dreamed of. John gave her absolutely everything she could ever want. Even though he was spending all his money to please Michelle, and it seems she's sort of using him, he still seems over the moon happy with her and her two children. He was involved with the children's school and hockey. He loved being a stepdad. But something was still missing for him. He wanted a child of his own. They tried having a baby, but they were unsuccessful. They tried fertility treatments, but nothing was working. So finally, they made the decision to adopt. They went to Russia a few times, and in March of 2000, after two years of marriage, they came back home with a baby boy named JJ. John was so proud of this little boy, and now it seemed like his life was complete, and he was more happy than he'd ever been. According to the Killer Affair episode, John's friend Dennis Vaughn says, quote, I think that probably was the happiest time that I had ever seen John. Unfortunately, it was short-lived. It didn't last very long, end quote. John was an amazing father and stepdad and did everything he could to provide for his family. But soon, the couple started arguing more and friends and family noticed that they weren't spending as much time together and they just didn't seem happy. According to the Dateline episode, Dennis Vaughn says that at first, John didn't really say that anything was going on with their marriage, no problems, but then, more and more, he started to open up and talk about how he just wasn't happy. John and Michelle just seemed to be so different. She was more materialistic and loved showing off their huge home, and John actually kind of seemed embarrassed by it. John was more modest and humble. Even though he had all this money, he didn't really like showing it off like Michelle seemed to enjoy. Dennis says John would actually hang out in the basement quite often. He says, quote, 
Of all things, it was the furnace room, this tiny, little, wasn't much bigger than a closet. He said, you know, this is really the only place in this whole house that I feel comfortable, end quote. Dennis says it just broke his heart to hear his friend say this. And Maria Takaleski, who met John in dental school and was his friend, says, quote, John was affectionate toward Michelle, but I never saw Michelle be affectionate back to John. She always seemed distant or almost put off by him. It was always, ugh, or he was just there, end quote. Then, after four years of marriage, Michelle makes a startling confession. She tells John that she's been having an affair. This absolutely devastates John and crushes him. But Michelle isn't the only one keeping a secret. John himself has something to share. He too had an affair. Early on in their relationship, John had a brief fling with a younger woman in his office. And John thought that by telling this to Michelle now, in this moment, that this would actually save their marriage. That this would give them a foundation to move forward with honesty. But it backfires. According to the Dateline episode, John's friend Dennis Vaughn says Michelle completely lost it after he told her about his affair, even though she had just admitted to having one herself. She starts yelling at him and screaming at him, how dare you have an affair? She tells him he needs to leave to move out. So to not wake the children, John just leaves the house and then he moves out. The day he moves out, a close friend and that friend's girlfriend help John move his things out. The friend's girlfriend was Maggie McCartan, and this was the first time she ever met John or Michelle, and she recalls the day she helped John move out. According to the Dateline episode, Maggie says she felt so bad for John and his son JJ. They were both incredibly sad, and Michelle just didn't seem to care at all. She didn't seem sad or bothered by this. And she started sort of bragging. She talked a lot about how she was seeing somebody else who had a lot of money and who was buying her all these gifts and that he was good in bed. She was saying all of this to Maggie, someone who she literally just met. And she was saying it in front of JJ too. Obviously, it seems she was trying to make John jealous. In 2002, the couple separated, and in June of 2003, Michelle filed for divorce. She cited irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. John ended up moving into a smaller house in Blairsville and put Michelle and the three kids in a different home as well, smaller than their big fancy home. John tried to see JJ as much as he could, but Michelle was making that as difficult as possible for him. One and a half years after they separated, Michelle makes a startling claim that John choked JJ and punched him in the face. Maggie McCartan, again that friend's girlfriend who helped John move out, says there's no way these things happen. According to the Dateline episode, she says she was actually with John the day that this supposed abuse took place. She says, quote, I never saw him raise a hand to that boy, much less a voice. He was just not that type of person. He was a very gentle, loving father, end quote. But the judge ordered John to stay away from JJ and Michelle. Not long after that, Michelle reported John for violating that order, and cops actually showed up at his dental office and arrested him there. John's cousin, Marianne Clark, says, quote, the local police went into his dental office as he's working on a patient and took him out in handcuffs, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, 
He said that the only thing he could be thankful for was that his mom wasn't here, because that would have killed her, end quote. In 2005, Michelle made another claim. This time, she says John sexually abused JJ. She reported it to the Pennsylvania State Police, and six-year-old JJ had a story that backed up these allegations. So, was it true? Or was he being coached on what to say? Either way, John was, yet again, ordered to stay away from JJ, and he was summoned to the trooper barracks to explain himself. John Whitmer, who was a retired trooper, sat in on the interview as John denied everything. According to the Dateline episode, he says, quote, Dr. Yelnick seemed like a nice guy. He seemed pretty mild-mannered. I mean, he wasn't jumping up and down screaming or anything, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, He was calm. He really was. I think he really wanted to at least help us get to the bottom of things, end quote. John continued to deny all of the allegations Michelle had against him. And he was backed up by all of his friends and family. They all knew that this was completely false. According to the Killer Affair episode, John's divorce lawyer, Effie Alexander, says it was like a sick game that Michelle was playing with him. She says, quote, I received a call from John that he had been contacted by Children, Youth, and Families, which is the agency that investigates child abuse she had attempted to file criminal charges, end quote. John was adamant to prove his innocence that he even submitted to multiple lie detector tests, all of which he passed with flying colors. But it was up to a judge to determine if John would ever be able to see JJ again. John's divorce lawyer was doing everything she could to help him. She showed the judge what she considered to be proof that the abuse never happened, she shows the judge a home video that John had made on the day that he supposedly molested JJ. In the video, you can clearly see that JJ was loving every minute of that day spent with his dad. He's smiling, he's so happy, and at the end of the video, he says, I don't want to go home, Daddy. I love you. I had so much fun. The judge took JJ in her chambers to speak with him alone to get to the bottom of this. What I would assume would happen is J.J. would admit to her that these allegations of abuse never happened and that his mother told him to say these things. But instead, he just keeps repeating that the abuse did take place. Just keeps literally repeating it. It was pretty clear that he had been coached on what to say and this was rehearsed. The judge didn't buy it and she found that there had been no abuse and she dismissed the court order that was in place stating that John couldn't see J.J., and no criminal charges were ever filed. John was so overcome with joy that he won, but he was still worried because he knew it wasn't over with Michelle. His friends and family believed that she made JJ say that John abused him because that was her way of getting whatever she wanted from John in the divorce. By her using JJ, that was the way to John. John had picked up JJ for a Thanksgiving visit in 2005, and Zachary, John's next-door neighbor boy and JJ's friend, went with him. According to the Dateline episode, Zachary, now in his early 20s at the time of this interview, explains what happened. He says, quote, So JJ was deathly afraid, was screaming, kicking, hooting and hollering. Michelle was saying, Oh, you're scaring him. You're scaring him. End quote. 
John's friend Maggie says John called her afterwards and was just sobbing. He was devastated. She had never heard John cry, and he tells her he doesn't know if he'll ever get to see JJ again. JJ ended up not visiting John for Christmas that year either. Now remember, earlier I talked about how Michelle claims she had a boyfriend, and that he's spending all this money on her, and he's just this amazing guy. Well, his name is Kevin Foley, and he's a state trooper. According to the Dateline episode, John's cousin Marianne Clark was asked how she felt when she heard that Michelle was dating a state trooper. She says, quote, Well, when I first heard it, and I knew that she and John were headed for divorce, I thought, you know what, there couldn't be any better role model or better influence on John's son or on Michelle's children, end quote. But Michelle's new boyfriend didn't seem to be the good guy that everyone thought. Even though the allegations of abuse and child molestation against John were proved to be false, Michelle's boyfriend is convinced that it actually did happen. And he starts to really have a hatred towards John. He started to become more aggressive towards him and would make verbal threats, and this kind of scared John. I mean, this guy is a state trooper dating your soon-to-be ex-wife who's making child abuse claims against you. I'd be scared too. According to the Dateline episode, Maria Tekaleski, again John's friend from dental school, says she told John, we need to go to the police about this guy. But she says John told her, quote, we can't go to the Blairsville Police Department. They hauled me out of my office. We can't go to the state police because Foley's one of them. He said, we don't have anyone to go to, end quote. Now remember, John was cleared of all the allegations. But Kevin Foley ended up asking his colleague to do a second investigation on John. He wasn't satisfied with the judge's ruling. So his colleague does investigate John for a second time. But again, nothing was found to be true. It just didn't happen, whether he wanted to believe it or not. It was clear that Michelle had made it up. Despite this second finding of John's innocence, he still despised John and believed that he was guilty. So much so that he actually told people that he wished John would die. John hasn't seen JJ for months, and he's still denying ever hurting the child. All he wants is to maintain a relationship with his son. And one thing John did was agreed to take anger management classes so that he could see JJ again. He was willing to do whatever it takes. Even though he's completely 100% innocent, he played along with Michelle's games. This is also when John hired his divorce attorney. Michelle tried to stop John from taking JJ on a trip to Disney World, so he got a divorce attorney to fight for him. And the judge ultimately says he can take JJ to Disney World. So Michelle, obviously mad about this, decided to shave JJ's head. Now, at first I was thinking, okay, why would you shave his head? Or like, so she shaved her kid's head, big deal. But John thought her reasoning for this was so that JJ would look like a prisoner in their pictures from Disney World. And even though he honestly did resemble a prisoner, JJ and John had a great time at Disney. But one thing did upset John, when JJ would talk about Michelle's boyfriend, Kevin Foley. John's friend Maggie says, if JJ was ever upset with John, he would say, well, Trooper's my daddy, you're not my daddy anymore. So, Michelle and John were still fighting over JJ. And it wasn't just JJ they were fighting over. They were also fighting about money. 
John's receptionist told police that Michelle had made angry calls to him at work asking for money. She would call his office and just scream at the receptionist, and John was so humiliated that he would just give in. He'd give her more and more just to keep her happy and quiet. And something that seemed to upset her and made her demand more money from John is that in January of 2006, their divorce settlement was almost finalized. Michelle stood to get 60% of their assets, but she was going to have a huge cut to her monthly alimony payments from John. She was going to lose about $3,100 a month, meaning that she was only going to be getting $1,100 a month for child support. Now, she did sign the documents, but then continually called John's office demanding more money. And the reason she was losing that $3,100 a month from John was because of her new boyfriend, State Trooper Kevin Foley, who again was living with her. And in Pennsylvania, alimony is not awarded when someone is cohabiting. All John wanted was for an agreement to finally be reached in their divorce negotiations so that he could just focus on his relationship with JJ and moving forward. And the divorce negotiations included shared custody of JJ. But again, Michelle wanted more. She even had her attorney call John's divorce lawyer and she had others talk to John as well. But none of that worked. One thing she knew would work, though, or at least had always worked in the past, was her calling John herself and asking for money. So she calls John, but this time it doesn't work. He held his ground, and not long after that, someone vandalizes his car. And this is when John tells his divorce lawyer something incredibly spooky and interesting. When John's car was vandalized, this seemed to kind of spark a premonition that he had. The premonition was that he was actually going to be murdered. According to the Dateline episode, John's divorce lawyer says, quote, John called me one day shortly after his car had been vandalized, and he just really blew me away. He told me that he wanted to send me $10,000 to hold to investigate his murder because he was convinced that he was going to be killed and that his murder would be covered up and that the evidence would be buried along with him and that it would go unsolved, end quote. She says it was so chilling to hear John tell her this. According to the Dateline episode, he even told his dental school friend, Maria Tekaleski, quote, He said, if they have me killed, tell JJ that I loved him and that he was my whole life and someday get in touch with him and make sure he knew how much I loved him, end quote. On April 13, 2006, John was to sign his divorce papers, but he never got to. That morning, John's neighbor boy and JJ's friend, nine-year-old Zachary Youth, goes up to John's front door. He wants to see if JJ's home to play. But when he gets to the front door, he sees that a window had been smashed, and there's blood. Blood dripping down the length of the window to the floor. According to WPXI-TV, Zachary explains what he remembers from that day. He says he went to John's house looking for JJ, and quote, So I'm walking up to his porch, and I noticed the broken glass on the steps. He had red carpet, so I didn't notice the blood at first but I noticed that his panel side window on the left was broken. 
and there was blood kind of smeared a little bit going down the front. I put my hand through the window, I unlocked the door, went inside, and I saw John laying right there, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, He had a slit on his throat, his clothing was drenched in blood, end quote. 39-year-old John Yelnick was dead. Zachary says he then ran home to his mother. According to an episode of Psychic Investigators, his mother, Melissa Use, says, quote, He was so upset and I'm like, what is wrong? What is wrong? I thought maybe Zachary had got hurt or what have you. He's like, you have to come now. It's John. He's dead, end quote. She immediately calls 911. Now, unfortunately, when dispatchers put out the call, first responders were actually mistakenly told that it had been a heart attack. Officer Don Isherwood is the first to get to John's house, and as you can imagine, he is very surprised by what he sees because he's expecting that this was a heart attack. According to WPXI-TV, Officer Don Isherwood says, quote, as you approached the stairs, you could see the broken glass from one of the window panes, and the glass was blown out over the steps and onto the porch, end quote. Inside is John's barefoot, lifeless body covered in blood. It's obvious to the officer that this definitely was not a heart attack. John had been stabbed and slashed numerous times in the neck, face, chest, and back. His throat had been slashed ear to ear. Officer Janelle Lydek is called in to assist the first officer on scene. According to the Dateline episode, she says at the time she was called, she was actually driving with her husband and children in the car, and it isn't typical for her to be called in for a heart attack, but she turned the car around anyway, with her children and husband still inside, and goes straight to John's house. She pulls up, and the very first thing she notices is blood at the front door. She clearly knows this is no heart attack, and she's afraid that the killer might still be in the house or nearby, and again, her family is still in the car, so she puts herself between the house and the car. She's protecting both the officer inside and her family outside. As Officer Don Isherwood is checking every room in the house, he ends up coming to the basement, and he notices a large puddle of blood, so, obviously, he's thinking the attack may be started down here. But then he looks up, and he sees that the blood was actually dripping through the floor. The attack was so violent that blood had actually seeped through the floor above and made a pool in the basement. John's cousin, Marianne Clark, who lives not far from John, says she heard sirens in town but didn't think anything at the time, until she got a phone call from one of John's neighbors. The neighbor explains what's going on at John's house, that there's multiple police cars, there's cops inside the house. Marianne immediately drives to John's house. She tries to get inside to see John and figure out what's going on, but they wouldn't let her in and told her, John's been murdered, you don't want to see this. Who would have killed John and in such a violent way? The two officers on scene start their investigation immediately. As they're walking through the house, it is very neat, orderly, everything's in its place, and there's a recently renovated child's room with fresh paint, a TV, and a video game console. Obviously for JJ. John was hoping he would soon get his son back. He hadn't seen him since before Thanksgiving, and now this is April. 
and officers notice another thing. Unopened Christmas presents. That's odd. Easter is only a couple days away. Why are there wrapped Christmas presents still out? Those Christmas presents were also for JJ, still waiting for him to come and open them. Police continue searching for evidence. Most of the evidence was blood. It was in the living room, it was on the walls, the floor, in the foyer, which led to the front door. They could tell that there was some sort of a struggle. And as I mentioned, there was a front window that had been broken. There were three vertical glass panels on each side of the front door, and something had gone through the middle panel on the left side of the door. There were papers scattered all over the floor with blood smudges and smears on them. There were also bloody shoe prints on the floor. And remember, I said John was barefoot, so they clearly weren't his. And something that was incredibly eerie is that, remember I said John was going to sign the divorce papers the morning he was murdered? Well, the divorce papers were found on his coffee table, and they were covered in his blood. Because there was just so much blood, the killer ended up stepping in it and leaving a trail of those bloody shoe prints, which led down the hall and out the back door. Now, because Michelle was John's next of kin, they needed to notify her of his death. Technically, they're still married. Michelle was living 10 miles away in Indiana, Pennsylvania, in the house that John had set up for her. According to the Dateline episode, when the officer tells Michelle that John died, she actually says she already knew, and that she heard it was a heart attack. But the officer tells her, no, he's been murdered. And according to the Killer Affair episode, Michelle was very taken back by the news. She seemed very sad and shocked by this. She had actually just signed the divorce papers herself and says she was ready to move on with her life, and she wished no ill will towards John. She agreed to help police in any way that she could. She tells them she has no idea who could have done this, but she is definitely a suspect. I mean, she stood to get millions of dollars out of John's death. But investigators still need to look at other possibilities. By this time, the whole town of Blairsville knew of John's murder, and everyone was in disbelief and shock. John was so well-liked, he was the town dentist, no one can believe something like this would have happened to him. Forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht is brought on the case. He says this is one of the most violent deaths he's ever seen. And he's worked on some very famous cases. He was involved in the Kennedy assassination and John Benet Ramsey. He's also performed over 20,000 autopsies and has 50 years of experience as a forensic scientist. So he has an incredible amount of knowledge. He performs the autopsy on John as well. He was saving blood samples, tissue, he collected clippings of John's fingernails, anything that might turn up as evidence. And Officer Janelle Lydic was sent to John's autopsy to collect any of that evidence, including what might be under John's fingernails. She put the fingernail clippings in a fridge at police headquarters instead of immediately sending them to the state police lab. According to the Dateline episode, she says she did this because something in her gut was telling her she needed to protect the evidence. Dr. Cyril Wecht decided to go to the crime scene himself to gain some more knowledge and insight in the case. According to the Dateline episode, he says, quote, 
My own inspection of the death scene indicated that Dr. Yelnick had been injured already in the back part of the house, end quote. He believes the killer then chased John through the house, slashing him while they're running. He then says why he believes the front window on the side of the door had been broken and covered in blood. He says, quote, His head is pushed through this multi-paned glass arrangement on the right side of the door looking at it from the inside, end quote. John suffered massive, if not fatal, injuries to his neck when his head went through that window. Dr. Weck says, quote, Dr. Yelnick then finally fell to the ground, obviously, and his throat then was slashed, end quote. He says whoever attacked John had to have been bigger and stronger than him to overcome him. John was nearly six feet tall, and I'd say he was of average build, and Dr. Weck says that the blade used to slash and stab John was at least six inches long and was a one-sided blade. According to the Dateline episode, I believe it was a friend of John's, had said he was wearing a turtleneck in his casket. She ended up getting there early and moved down his turtleneck and saw the slash wounds where his head was almost severed. She says John never wore turtlenecks, but this was the only way to cover up how he died. Michelle never came to John's funeral. JJ didn't even come. The funeral director told John's cousin, Mary Ann, that Michelle didn't even want anything to do with the body. According to the Dateline episode, Mary Ann says, quote, How do you dismiss a human being, much less your husband and the father of your child, and say you don't care what they do with the body? End quote. John's friends got together after his funeral to talk about suspicions that they had. They had an inkling that John's divorce had something to do with his murder. And we know they all had a theory that Michelle's boyfriend, Trooper Kevin Foley, was involved. John told his friends that Kevin didn't like him. John's friend Dennis Vaughn said John would go to pick up JJ or drop him off, and Kevin would stand over John in a menacing manner, or he would stand on the porch with his arms crossed and just stare John down to try to intimidate him. After John's death, it seemed that Michelle and Kevin just went on with their lives like nothing ever happened. John's cousin Marianne says she would hear stories of Kevin and Michelle, of them living together and adopting another child. On day one, John's friends told police that Kevin Foley should be their prime suspect. Officer Janelle Lydeck says she knew Kevin Foley. He was actually a criminal investigator, so he could have very well been called in to help to investigate John's death. And remember, I mentioned Kevin Foley would actually tell people that he wished John would die? Well, when officers are at the crime scene the day of the murder, they're all kind of talking amongst themselves, and they're saying, Oh, I hope Kevin has an alibi. Or, boy, where was Kevin last night? Everyone knew he had this hatred towards John. A detective goes to speak with Kevin fully. She asks him where he was when John was murdered, and he says he was playing hockey with friends that night. And as the detective is sort of wrapping things up, she notices that he has about a one-inch gash above his left eye. Now, we all know that there was a violent struggle in John's house. Maybe Kevin's gash was caused by that struggle. 
Kevin could see that the detective was looking at his gash, obviously wondering where it came from. He looks at her and just says, hockey, but she didn't buy it. She left and went straight to the district attorney, telling him that they need to get a search warrant for Kevin's blood. But the district attorney says there's not enough probable cause to do that. And the police had a hard time thinking that one of their own could somehow be involved in this. So they continue moving forward in the investigation and looking at other possible suspects. They release a statement for the community letting them know that there is no danger, that John's murder was just an isolated incident. They talk to John's neighbors to see if they can provide any leads. Neighbors end up telling officers that around 1.30 in the morning, they heard loud screams and noises from John's house. One neighbor says the sounds were so awful, it sounded like a pig squealing. Another neighbor said they actually heard an argument, and they heard a man yell, I'll never loan you money again. Now, even though the neighbors heard these blood-curdling screams, no one actually saw anything, and no one even called 911. But at least police now knew the murder took place around 1.30 in the morning. Now, who would John be yelling at saying, I'll never lend you money again? Well, inside John's home, police found a blood-splattered check for $15,000 from Melissa Use, John's next-door neighbor and Zachary's mother. John and Melissa had been friends since the ninth grade, and Melissa wanted to open a bakery, so John was lending her money to start it up. According to an episode of Psychic Investigators, Melissa says John lent her $15,000, but then suddenly, he asked for it back. He said he needed it for a tax payment. She wrote him a check for $15,000, but told him to wait to cash it because she only had $14,000 in her account and would have the remaining money in a couple weeks. But police didn't buy it, and they found out something even more interesting about Melissa and John. Many of their neighbors told police that John and Melissa were having an affair. Melissa is married, but that doesn't mean she wasn't seeing John as well. And how convenient, I mean, he lives right next door. Now, if this is true, did Melissa's husband find out and kill John? It would add up with the neighbor hearing John yell, I'll never lend you money again. Police were now looking at not only Melissa use, but her husband Tom use as well. According to the Dateline episode, Officer Janelle Lydeck, the second officer on scene, says she straight up says to Melissa, were you having an affair with John? And Melissa immediately denies it. She says they have always been good friends, but nothing more. So Janelle Lydeck speaks with Melissa's husband, Tom. She then asks him if he thought his wife and John were having an affair. And Officer Lydeck says, quote, he wouldn't answer the question directly. He kept saying about, I have to take care of the kids, end quote. Tom was kept on the list as a possible suspect. So now police had three possible suspects, Tom and Melissa Use and John's soon-to-be ex-wife, Michelle. But they still keep searching for other possible leads. They ended up looking at John's friends. Dennis Vaughn, he was one of the last people to see John alive, he was actually at John's house just a few days prior to the murder. They question him and ask him about his relationship with John, but he was ultimately cleared as a suspect. 
Police learned that Melissa wasn't the only one John was lending money to. He had a cousin named Tracy Jacobs. He wanted to start a lawn care business, so John ended up lending him about $20,000. And Tracy says John never asked him to pay him back the money. And ultimately, police never found any evidence of bad blood or anything between them, and Tracy even took a polygraph and passed, so he is no longer a suspect. Police continue pushing forward. They find out John's business partner at the dental practice was actually trying to get out of their partnership, so they interview him. But he is also cleared, so where do police go from here? They turn back to Tom Use, John's next-door neighbor. According to the Dateline episode, Zachary talks of what it was like knowing his father was a suspect in the murder. He says, quote, At school, actually, kids would tell me all the time, we heard your dad did it. And I would tell them, he did not do it. He did not do it. Where did you even hear that? And they're like, oh, my parents said it. Or the TV said it. Or they said that he was a suspect or whatever. It hurt a lot, end quote. As you can imagine, this took a toll on the Use family. Rumors that the wife is having an affair with her next-door neighbor and that the husband killed the neighbor. It was starting to really affect the marriage and the family. Melissa was worried of the effect that it was having on them, so she actually started an investigation on her own to clear her and her husband's names. And it wasn't what you would think of for an investigation, at least not one I would think of. She hired two psychic sisters, Suzanne and Jean Vincent, who are known as the Pittsburgh Psychic Sisters. According to the Psychic Investigators episode, a month after John's murder, Melissa contacted the sisters and asked if they would come to Blairsville to go through John's house. And they agreed. Two months after speaking to Melissa, the Psychic Sisters come to Blairsville and Officer Janelle Lydic was with the sisters in John's house. According to the Psychic Investigators episode, officers were very skeptical to let these two sisters be involved. As you can imagine, it would be a bit strange, I think. But it's something that John's family agreed with, and honestly, what could it hurt? The sisters explain how their psychic abilities work. Suzanne Vincent says, quote, My psychic insights come to me in a variety of different ways, I start seeing flashes of light, I start seeing scenery and images, end quote. Her sister Jean says, quote, I might hear or taste something that would all be symbolic to what is this person all about, or what is this situation all about, end quote. Suzanne then says, quote, and I also have a spirit guide who accompanies me during a psychic session. I see a picture of him that kind of emerges, kind of like a negative, and he gives me these images and these visions of the people that I'm trying to communicate with on the other side, end quote. Now, Melissa doesn't tell the sisters anything. Nothing about herself, nothing about John, nothing about the murder. Basically, all they know is that Melissa had a friend who died in this home. Suzanne Vincent says, quote, And the first thing my spirit guide said to me was, There was a grief cloud all around this lady. I just said, oh my goodness, your boy found a body? And she said, yes, he did. The energy around her was that someone might even suspect her husband of doing this gruesome crime of killing this neighbor, end quote. 
This absolutely stunned Melissa. They knew things that there was no way they could know. Suzanne said she was even getting a very strong pull that whoever did this to John had parked their vehicle in the back. Jean Vincent says, quote, I had a vision of a maroonish, reddish SUV stalking John Yelenick's house, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, I was immediately pulled to the dining room and I looked right down and I said, whatever happened, happened right here. The energy was very heavy and thick. I was seeing stab wounds. I had seen his neck like jagged and then a straight line. I also saw a lot of blood pooling and pooling around my feet, end quote. She then says something remarkable. She says she saw the killer. She says, quote, John's spirit had drawn me to a shoe print, and as I put my hand over it, I start seeing a person with red hair, someone with light eyes, fair complexion, freckles, and I had a flash of a badge, end quote. Her sister Suzanne then says, quote, and all of a sudden, the spirit guide screamed out, law enforcement, end quote. Suzanne then says, quote, John saying he killed me, end quote. The sisters explain all of this to Officer Janelle Lydic, and she recognizes all of it. Who do we know in law enforcement that would have it out for John? Michelle's boyfriend, state trooper Kevin Foley. Kevin has red hair, he drives a maroonish SUV, and he's got a badge. Another thing that takes Officer Lydic back is when the sisters mentioned something about the bloody shoe prints. They said John's spirit kept telling them to pay attention to the shoe prints and that they could tell that the shoes were a size 10 and that they were an expensive running shoe. Officer Lydic says, quote, There's no way they could have known that. There's no, I mean, even if they got a tape measure, there's no way they could have known it because it was faded by then, end quote. The shoes were indeed a size 10. Another thing the sisters told officers is that John has the killer's DNA underneath his fingernails. And remember, John's fingernails were clipped in case that there was DNA under them. The psychics also tell police that they saw a flash of dog tags and that whoever had these dog tags killed John, that this person had a military background. So far, everything the psychics told police was leading to Kevin Foley. But Kevin didn't have a military background. Or did he? Police looked into it further and found that Kevin Foley did, in fact, have a military background. But this wasn't enough to arrest him, not even close. All they have on Kevin is two psychics basically saying he's guilty. They have no hard evidence against him. Police are now focused on process of elimination, eliminating as many suspects as possible. Now, no murder weapon has been found. They find no fingerprints. The only thing they have is the size 10 bloody shoe prints. Tom Use, Melissa's husband and Zachary's father again, ends up eliminated as a suspect. Tom's shoe size was much larger than the prints found and police find out that John and Tom actually had a good relationship, and Tom even took a polygraph and passed, so he is eliminated as a suspect. Now, something that I think is extremely odd is that Trooper Kevin Foley was never even interviewed, not once. 
the only time anyone spoke to him about John's murder or asked him anything was when that detective spoke to him briefly asking where he was the night of the murder and when she saw that gash on his forehead. That's it. They never question him again. According to the Dateline episode, that decision to basically leave Kevin Foley alone was made by the district attorney, Bob Bell. He told investigators not to interview Kevin. Officer Janelle Lydic says she never asked him why and just hoped that he knew what he was doing. She felt in her gut that it was wrong, but she obeyed him. John's friends and family thought that the district attorney was giving Kevin Foley special treatment, but why? John's friend, Dennis Vaughn, actually asks Bob Bell what his relationship is with Kevin Foley, and he says, I don't know him. And John's cousin, Marianne Clark, recalls speaking with Bob Bell at the crime scene, too. She says she told him that they all felt Kevin Foley was involved in John's murder. And Bob Bell just asks her, do we have a state trooper named Kevin Foley? But District Attorney Bob Bell was lying. He did indeed know Kevin Foley. They had even worked cases together. Dennis Vaughn did a Google search and found a photo of Bob and Kevin together in a local newspaper. But, of course, Bob Bell denies ever saying that he didn't know Kevin. And he says they weren't friends. He says the reason he didn't immediately get a search warrant for Kevin is because there wasn't enough probable cause. He also said he didn't want Officer Janelle Lydek to interview Kevin because she was too inexperienced. Someone who kept pushing the case along was John's cousin Marianne Clark, and she was going to do whatever it takes. She called Pennsylvania's Attorney General, the highest law enforcement officer in the state, and asked him to take over the case. And her efforts pay off. About a year after John's death, Tony Krastic, the deputy attorney general, took over the case. He says it's basically ridiculous that Kevin hadn't been interviewed. And unfortunately, he didn't get an interview with Kevin either. Kevin had gotten a lawyer and was keeping his lips sealed. Tony Krastic finds out that initial investigators had gone back to interview Kevin's co-workers, and they found something alarming. Remember I said Kevin would tell people that he wished John would die? Well, Kevin would tell this to his co-workers, and it was literally every day that he would say this. According to the Killer Affair episode, Tony Krastic says, quote, his colleagues at work would say that he would come in on his shift and say, How are you doing? I wish John Yelenick was dead. I wish he'd die. Or, I hate John Yelenick. End quote. He would literally tell anyone that would listen how much he hated John. Now, back at the crime scene, remember the bloody shoe prints? Well, those are the strongest bit of evidence they have right now. They know some sort of knife was used, but they don't have a murder weapon. And again, the killer left no fingerprints. So they need to identify these shoes. Remember, the psychic sisters said these were an expensive athletic type shoe? Well, the FBI crime lab agreed to look for a match in their database of these prints. They found that these shoe prints were from an Asics Gel Creed Plus, a tennis shoe. These were the only shoe prints from the crime scene, and even though Michelle could have been wearing the shoes to cover herself, investigators concluded that Michelle wasn't there. And something interesting is that ASICS had a program with law enforcement, 
officers would get a discount. And guess who was one of their best customers? Kevin Foley. And after looking at his purchases, they found a purchase for a size 10 Asics Gel Creed Plus athletic shoe. Investigators even found photos of Kevin wearing the shoes. His fellow troopers said whenever he worked out, he would always wear Asics shoes. Until the murder. Then he switched to Nike. And according to the Psychic Investigators episode, only 25,000 pairs were ever sold in America, which really narrowed it down. Something else investigators find out is that Kevin had a fondness of knives. He collected them and seemed just fascinated with them. According to the Killer Affair episode, Kevin Foley would walk around the barracks, flipping open his knife, then flicking it back closed, flicking it open, flicking it back closed. He would do this over and over. Investigators returned to Kevin's alibi. Remember, he said he was playing hockey with friends and that's how he got that cut on his face. Well, he played hockey in a town west of Blairsville, so he could have very well been traveling through Blairsville after his hockey game, at the time John was murdered. Deputy Attorney General Tony Krastic looked at surveillance footage from two convenience stores near John's house that showed a vehicle passing by around 1 a.m., 30 minutes before neighbors hear John's screams. Guess whose vehicle it was? State Trooper Kevin Foley's. Now, this is about a year after John was murdered, and John's fingernail clippings hadn't even been tested yet for DNA. When Deputy Attorney General Tony Krastic finds out that they haven't even been tested yet, he says, quote, I said, well, do I have to make a phone call because they're going to be tested, end quote. Remember, Officer Janelle Lydek put them in a fridge at the police headquarters. So, finally, they're sent to the lab. And when the results come back, they point to Kevin fully. So the psychics were right. But it wasn't a perfect match. According to Oxygen.com, the DNA had a match statistic of 13,000, which means that the chance that a random person would be included in that mixture of DNA is 1 in 13,000. Which at first may seem like a large number, but Pennsylvania scientist Mark Perlin says, quote, when there's 13 million people in Pennsylvania at the time, it's not persuasive evidence, end quote. But it is enough to bring charges against Kevin Foley. On September 27, 2007, nearly one and a half years after John's murder, Kevin is arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Now remember, District Attorney Bob Bell seemed to be kind of protecting Kevin a little, well, he was there for the announcement that Kevin had been arrested, and he praises law enforcement for their efforts. According to the Dateline episode, he says, quote, It is a testament of how well they worked together and never had a give-up attitude that has caused this case to be resolved as it has been today, end quote. Now, whether anyone chooses to believe his words is up to them. Marianne Clark, again John's cousin, describes how she felt the moment she found out Kevin was finally arrested. She says, quote, Well, it was my birthday. It was like the best day ever. It was such a sense of like, finally, justice is being served, end quote. And in March 2009, Kevin's trial begins. And Michelle never even attends the trial. And everybody immediately notices she's missing. How could she not be there to support the man she loves? 
And not only that, but opening arguments included that Michelle was going to provide alibi witness testimony on behalf of Kevin, but she never shows. Kevin Foley has never admitted to killing John. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Kevin testified for nearly four hours telling the jury that he did not kill John Yelnick. He was polite and calm, not at all what you would consider to be a violent murderer. He talked about his life growing up and how he was adopted. He says that about a month before John's murder, he actually adopted a boy from Guatemala. He says, quote, it was probably the best time of my life, end quote. He also claims that there weren't any hard feelings between Michelle and John since the divorce was finally settled. Even though Kevin never admitted to killing John, the prosecution believes that they have enough evidence to prove that he murdered him. During the trial, Deputy Attorney General Tony Krastic goes into detail explaining everything about John's death. He even shows a 3D animated computer graphic and photos of John's body. He asks Kevin fully about those comments he made about wanting John dead, and Kevin basically just says he wasn't being serious, it was just a joke. So, Tony Krastic asks him how he finds comments like, I told my mother that I pray for him to die in a car crash, to be funny. He says, quote, Tell me the joke. I don't get it. What's funny about it? End quote. Kevin replies, quote, It's my personality, my behavior. I would never pray for anything like that. I didn't say all those things they said I did. End quote. Now, he did admit that he disliked John, but says he didn't really want him dead. Kevin is also asked about the pair of ASIC shoes he had purchased that matched the prints at the crime scene. He says a lot of times he orders shoes for friends, and that that specific pair he had actually purchased for somebody else, but conveniently he can't remember who. Tony Krastic called Kevin Foley's fellow troopers to the stand, and they described how Kevin would just become enraged about John's child abuse allegations, and that he hated John and wanted him to die. Tony Krastic says that on the night of the murder, Kevin's hatred just reached a boiling point. John was going to sign the divorce papers the next day, drastically reducing his monthly payments to Michelle, so maybe Kevin went there to threaten John to continue with the payments, but instead of just threatening him, he kills him. This is what Tony Krastic tells jurors happened. He says, around 1 a.m. on April 13, 2006, Kevin fully arrives at John's home. He enters through the back door, and John confronts him, telling him to get out. The men begin arguing, and Kevin then attacks John with his knife, slashing him in the face and chest. Kevin then smashes John's head through that front window pane, nearly decapitating him, and John then falls to the ground and Kevin slashes his throat. The pathologist says it took about nine minutes for John to bleed to death. Tony Krastic introduced the DNA evidence from under John's fingernails. Now remember, it was 1 in 13,000, so it didn't exclude Kevin fully, but it didn't prove it was 100% without a doubt his DNA either. So, Tony Krastic turns to Dr. Mark Perlin, who has a bioinformation company called Cybergenetics. 
Dr. Perlin had invented a new computer technique for analyzing DNA data. It had never been used before in court, this was the very first time, and Dr. Perlin's analysis came up with a startling result. He says it was definitely Kevin Foley's DNA. In fact, it was 1 in 189 billion now, not 1 in 13,000. It was amazing how far DNA testing had come by this point. But again, Kevin maintains his innocent. But it's in the jury's hands now. On March 18, 2009, after final arguments, the jury goes to deliberate. Would they find Kevin guilty of murder? After four hours of deliberating, the jury is back. But it's not with a decision. Instead, they have a question. They ask the judge to redefine without a reasonable doubt. Now, this is like the worst thing for the prosecution and John's family to hear. The jury then goes back to deliberations. Now, something to think about is, where is Michelle? Remember, she's missing. The fate of her boyfriend is in the hands of these jurors right now, and she's just MIA. According to the Dateline episode, Michelle was actually at home, and she was paying close attention to the trial. John's cousin, Mary Ann, says, quote, As we're sitting in that courthouse on pins and needles, we find out through a family member that Michelle was at home with welcome home signs and balloons and planning a big party for that night whenever he was acquitted, end quote. Now, two hours after deliberating further, jurors are back again. Will Kevin be greeted by Michelle and that welcome home sign? The verdict is unanimous. Kevin Foley is found guilty of first-degree murder. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. According to the Killer Affair episode, John's cousin Marianne Clark says, quote, It didn't bring John back. It didn't lessen the heartache that we all felt. But such relief, such a relief to know that finally justice had been served, end quote. On the day Kevin was sentenced, Michelle actually packed up a truck and moved to Savannah, Georgia. John's family says they never heard from her again. She raised JJ without John's family being involved. Now, one thing stuck with John's cousin Marianne, and probably other family and friends as well. Michelle hadn't ever been held accountable for her part in John's death. Marianne believes that Michelle made it very clear to Kevin that she wanted John gone for good, and she was the one who had to gain from John's death. In fact, before Kevin's trial even started, Marianne had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against both Kevin and Michelle. And something interesting is that Michelle obviously denied any involvement in John's death, and she says she actually wasn't even aware that Kevin had any hostility towards John. Marianne did end up dropping the suit, though, after Kevin's trial. And Michelle never faced any criminal charges. There was no proof tying her to John's murder. She may have provoked this to happen, but there just wasn't any evidence. JJ is living with Michelle, and unfortunately, none of John's family or friends have seen him since John's murder. John's cousin Marianne says, quote, We set up a trust for John's son, and at age 18, he would inherit all of his wealth. I hope that he's having a good life. I hope that he is happy. I hope that he gets everything that he wants out of life. And I just hope that he knows how much his father loved him, end quote. 
John's friend Dennis Vaughn says, quote, I miss John every single day. The two photos that I have in my house of John are of him both smiling and having a good time because that's the way I choose to remember him, end quote. In 2016, Kevin Foley tried to appeal his conviction, stating that his reasoning being ineffective counsel. He claims his attorneys failed to pursue a sort of lead that he says he had. He thought a neighbor of John's may have actually committed the murder, but his appeal was denied. He will remain in prison for the rest of his life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Homicide Hottish. And remember to check out our Facebook page, Homicide Hottish, for when our next episode will be released.